And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, and if you haven't opened up to it yet, let me encourage you again, let's get that open, and let me start by even telling you about a survey that was taken February 2019, so not very long ago, a year ago. And this was done by Barna Research, and they're, they're pretty good at what they do. And they found, and this is so unsettling to me that I had to share it with you, and it really underscores and undergirds why we need the message that you're going to hear. They found that 47%, nearly 50% of active Christians, those who self-identify as evangelical, serious about their faith, active Christians. Now listen to the rest of it. 47% of them from the ages of 20 to 38, they say that it's, and I'm quoting now, that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Now I'm going to read it again. 47% of active Christians, I mean, that's really understandable if you're talking about, you know, mainline denominations where people really don't go very often, they don't treat their faith perhaps very strongly, but 47% of active Christians ages 20 through 38, that's the demographic that the survey was given to, they say that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. In other words, it's wrong to witness to a non-believer about your Christian faith. Now, unsettlingly, that's not a new survey. That's been done now for a while. But the numbers are creeping wildly up. And if you haven't figured it out yet, we're talking about the millennial generation, and I'm telling you, the millennial generation is going to be rock stars if they get faith under their feet. And I am so thankful that we've got so many millennial believers in this church. I cannot tell you, I often tell them how grateful I am because their faith is so solid, and they are going to be and are even now such leaders in this church impacting this ministry. But 47% of the millennial generation that identifies as Christians will not witness. They say it is actually wrong to do so. You should not impose your Christian beliefs on anybody. That is frightening. And Christians get really excited and they fiercely defend the saying... Preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. You've heard that, I'm sure. That has been a buzz phrase for decades. And it's been wrongly credited to St. Francis of Assisi. It's not from him. He never said that. Nobody really knows who actually said it. But what it does in that statement, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary, is it tears apart the critical relationship between our words and our deeds, or our words, and our lives. And I am so excited to show you what Paul says in Colossians 4, because he's going to unite them. Because I think Paul foresaw that error. And why wouldn't he? It's a lot easier, isn't it, to kind of sit back on the laurels of our 
lifestyles and say, that's enough. It's not enough. Our lifestyles aren't going to lead people to a salvation experience. It's going to be the words of the gospel evidencing itself or themselves by our lifestyles that's going to do that. We've got to marry them back together again. So I'm going to give you several points from this passage, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. And then I'm going to teach you how to have grace-filled words through an acronym. So let's jump right into it. First of all, we're going to see that we've got to speak to God in prayer. So we're talking about our words. We're in the Heart Talk series. We're talking about the words that we speak come from our hearts. Jesus said clearly, for out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So every word you spoke today and this last week, whether they were words of frustration Words of failure, words of degradation, words of profanity, words of edification, words of beauty. All of those words are coming from one source within you. It's called your heart. So if you've got a problem with your words, really, Jesus says, you've got a problem with your heart. And if you've got wonderful words that are giving life to people who hear them, then you've got a heart that God has got a hold of. But every word you speak has a moral value. It will bring death to somebody or it's going to bring life. There's just not a third position. And so we're constantly, by our words, planting seeds into the hearts of others, even our own hearts, by our self-talk. And they're going to produce those words, Will. Those seeds are going to pop up through the soil of the heart and there's going to be an abundant harvest. Will the harvest be life or will the harvest be death? But it all starts with speaking to God in prayer. Look at verse 2. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, there's a lot in this, and I'm going to parse it apart just a little bit. Let me just simply ask you, though, to reflect on this thought. God desires friendship with you. Do you really know that? Has that ever rooted itself into your heart, into your soul, that God, God, creator, omnipotent, omniscient, Lord, king of all kings, God desires friendship with you? That's an incredible thought. And I realize it might sound odd to some who have been brought up in a very stoic or a lifeless religion, or perhaps no religion, but it is true. God desires a close friendship with you. And prayer is the language of true, deep, and abiding and loving friendship with God. Prayer is the language of that friendship. If you want to know how much you value God's friendship, you literally could just stick a spiritual thermometer into your prayer life, and that will tell you by its readout how true it is. And this understanding of prayer moves it very far, doesn't it, from a very cold, lifeless duty? It breathes life into verse 2. Continue steadfastly. In prayer, or the New International Version says, devote yourselves to prayer. 
Conversation, communication, it's the backbone of any of your friendships. Just think through that for a moment. If you've got a friendship that you don't talk to that person or you don't have any kind of communication or conversation, you don't have a very close friendship, whether that's your spouse or whether that's your neighbor, your coworker, your teammate. If you've got a very close friendship, the backbone of it is your communication and your conversation. And prayer is the backbone of our friendship with God. And that conversation with God happens throughout the day. And as it does, it builds a trust in us for him, a confidence that we have for him, so that we're all of a sudden, look what it says in verse 2, we are watchful for his answer. Like we look for a notification from a friend on our phones. You just are waiting for your friend to call you or to text you or to email you or to Instagram. Whatever, whatever you use, when that comes in, you get excited. You can't way to read it that's what prayer is i probably am guessing 20 22 years ago i read the verse i'm about to read you and i have never forgotten it never i'm going to read it to you from the cev version just because i like how it goes david's writing it psalm chapter 5 verse 3 each morning you listen to my prayer O god as I bring my request to you and wait for your reply. Think of your friends and you fire off a text. And whether you get busy or not in your peripheral ear, auditory, vision, whatever, you're waiting for that notification sound. You're anticipating it. This is what prayer is like. Each morning I pray, David said, and I'm waiting throughout the day and I'm watching because I know God's going to answer me. And I don't want to miss it when it comes. It is the stuff of our friendship with God that allows us, that backbone that allows us to pray with thanksgiving because we know God. We know, we trust him. We know he's perfectly good all the time with us. I mean, James said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That means from God, coming down from the Father of lights. So prayer is the confidence and the conversation that provides the backbone of your friendship with God. God loves me. He wants to be my friend. He wants me to be his friend. And prayer is our ongoing conversation. And when I pray, God will answer. Not might, he will. And I'm watching for it so I don't miss it. Now, why did I go into all that, and why is Paul starting out what will become more evident, a section of Scripture on our speech, why is he talking about prayer? And I'm going to answer it with this. A Christian who speaks often to God will speak well to others. And that's where Paul is about to turn us. Look at point number two. Speak to others clearly. First point was to speak to God in prayer. I don't know where your prayer life is at. Most of the Christians that I talk to, it's not very strong. And we wonder why God seems so distant. But we speak to others clearly. And Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us. 
Paul puts a prayer request on the Colossians prayer chain, basically. It's a church he didn't even start. Did you know that? It was begun by a man named Epaphras. Paul didn't start this church, but he's caring for the church because the church is reeling because of false doctrine, and it's starting to take root in the church. you got all these false teachers. And I'm going to tell you from a pastor's heart that when false teaching starts coming into this church through a popular book that is heretical or through a really popular speaker or a popular song, it gets me fired up. It's, I want to protect you. This is what Paul is doing. He's writing this letter to protect the church at Colossae so that it won't, take, won't let false teaching take root. And he puts a prayer request on their prayer chain. He writes, from house arrest in a Roman prison. That's where he's at for two years. He's in a Roman prison on house arrest. And he's preaching, look what it says, the mystery of Christ, verse 3. Now, what is the mystery of Christ? It's not a secret that's given to only a privileged few, but by the way, I know you probably don't care and you're never going to remember this, but one of the major false doctrines coming into this church is called Gnosticism, and Gnosticism is knowledge that only a few are going to get. You get to see that in Jehovah's Witness heresy. Jehovah's Witness is only a few are actually going to be in heaven. The rest are going to be down here on earth. That's Gnosticism repackaged for the modern day. It's coming into this church. So mystery of Christ, it's not a secret that's given to a privileged few. It is the good news that men and women can be forgiven of their sins and can become full citizens in God's kingdom when they repent and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. That's the mystery of Christ. Salvation is available to anybody. You could be a man or you could be a woman. You could be rich or you could be poor. You could be a free person or a slave. You could be of any ethnicity. It doesn't really matter at all. Its salvation is available to all through Christ alone as you put your faith and your trust in him. You see, what landed Paul in prison, remember I told you he's in house arrest at Rome when he writes this letter, what put him in that prison was the exclusive nature of the mystery of Christ. In fact, it says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'll never forget years ago, I had one of the most angry visitors to our church come to me to take a parting shot before she left. She came down to the front and said, are you telling me that the only way a person could be saved is by putting their faith in Jesus Christ? And I said, absolutely, that's exactly what I'm telling you because that's what the Bible says. She says, well, that's not what I believe and I'm not coming to a church that teaches that. That angers people 
You want to get the world angry at you? You want to get your fellow teachers angry at you? Your neighbors angry at you? And your dorm mates and your teammates angry? Tell them about the exclusive nature of the mystery of Christ. And you will get so many people mad at you because they don't like exclusivity. They like pluralism. And pluralism in our world is all about, there's a lot of different paths that all go up the mountain. They're always going to get to the top. It doesn't matter if you're on the Baha'i path. If you're on the Mormon path, if you're on the Islam path, it doesn't matter. They're all going to get to the top. But the Bible says, no, they won't. There's only one path that can lead to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. But that infuriated the Jews. It angered the Romans. They actually called the Christians, get this, you ready? They called the Christians pagans. You know why they called the Christians pagans? Because they wouldn't worship the Roman pantheon of gods. They would only worship one god. They were monotheistic, the Jews, and Christians are monotheistic. There is one god. And he has a son named Jesus Christ. But Paul was in prison because of that message. And so he asks for prayer. From the church of Colossae, he asked that God, that they would pray that God would open his cell door? No. I mean, look at your text. He's in prison. He could have fired off. I think I probably would have, unfortunately. Hey, would you pray that God will get me out of prison? I've got a lot of things I need to do. That's actually code for, I really don't want to be in prison anymore. He doesn't even ask for that. He just asks not for the cell door to be open, but for a gospel door to be open, verse 3. For the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He recognized God put him there. God's sovereign decree is that Paul should be in prison. And there's going to be an opportunity there. But Paul prays and asks for prayer in verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I mean, I find that amazing that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the New Testament books, I mean, a theologian par excellence, Paul would ask a church to pray that he can make the gospel clear. Who's made it more clear than Paul? But even Paul struggled I mean, by the way, listen, just a fun little tidbit of study. You don't ask for prayer what you're not struggling with. In other words, flip that to a more positive. If you're asking for prayer, you're struggling with it. So if Paul's asking that the Colossians church would pray that he could make the gospel clearly, the mystery of Christ clearly, then that means Paul found it very difficult. And I find it very difficult. And I'm probably imagining that a lot of you find it very difficult. How do I clearly tell somebody about Christ? It's not that easy. There are so many times I've come away from talking to someone and I just absolutely apologize to God. I think I made it worse. But what it does is it drives me to study harder, to learn how to explain the gospel simply. I mean, Paul said to young Timothy, the church pastor 
of Ephesus, he says to him in 2 Timothy, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So it actually, I think, is appropriate for me to ask you, are you studying the word of God? Now, notice what I, just didn't, what I didn't just ask. I did not ask, do you have five minutes in the Word of God a day? Or ten minutes? Do you read the Bible each day? I'm not even asking that. I'm asking, are you studying the Word of God? So that you can learn it better. Why? Not only for your own life, Psalm 1 again, meditate on it day and night, be like that tree. Not only for your own life, but so that you can make it clear to somebody who is wondering about it, who is seeking it, or even opposing it. Christians in this sanctuary right now, be encouraged the disciples struggled to speak the gospel clearly. This is why Jesus said to them, he reassured them and he's reassuring us. Matthew 10, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That was a promise to the disciples, and it's a promise to us as well. The Spirit of God will guide you into all truth, and he will help you speak it clearly, especially as you study and show yourself approved. God will give you what you need to speak the mystery of Christ clearly, so you ask God for help. Now, I like to ask questions every once in a while. I do this in counseling as well. Questions for me, when somebody asks me a question, it makes me stop and really think. And so I ask you a question, it's not just a pastoral preaching trick, it's actually an invitation to really ponder something and to really get your heart turned inside out like a sock or a glove. So let me ask you a question, if I could. Are you studying God's word? and knowing better how to explain it to somebody else. I'm just going to tell you, this is the most prevalent question in almost 30 years of ministry that I have ever asked, not only this church, but the first church I pastored in Georgia. I have asked over and over of individuals and groups, are you deeply, deeply pursuing God through his word? And nearly every time the answer is no. Usually I get either flat out, no, I, need, I know I need to, or slightly better is I'm reading a bit of a devotional. I'm not asking that. I'm asking if you are studying God's word so that you can know it better, so that you can explain it to somebody else. Are you praying like David for those opportunities and for Paul like those opportunities in Psalm 5-3 for David and Paul in Colossians 4 and then you're waiting for them with thanksgiving? I mean, is that not faith-filled praying? God, would you give me an opportunity today to share the mystery of Christ, the gospel of the good news? Would you give me that opportunity at school today? 
Would you give me a, that opportunity at work today? Or in my family today? Or with my neighbors today? Or I'm going to a social function. Would you give me an opportunity? And God, you know what? I know that's a prayer that you like to answer. So I'm going to be watching for it. I'm going to be looking for the door that's opening. And I'm already telling you thanks. Thank you for giving me that opportunity. And I want you to bless it the way you want to bless it. But I'm going to take it if it comes. That's Colossians 4, 2 and 3 and 4. And that opportunity may be there with a person sitting next to you on a plane or on a train. I've shared the mystery of Christ with people on a plane. They're a captive audience. Nobody yet's jumped out. They might have wanted to, but there's nowhere to go. Even if they go to the bathroom, eventually they got to get back to the seat for the seatbelt lights coming on. You just pick it right back up again. It may be while you are the one in the hospital bed and your doctors and your nurses are your captive audiences because they've got to take care of you. I've had so many people from this church when they've been in the hospital bed, there's not anybody that comes in without hearing about Christ. And I go to visit them and I go away going, Lord, I want to be like that. If I'm in a hospital bed, would you please help me to be like that? The best thing I think I've ever been able to do that's closest to that is I got pulled over in Virginia by a police officer and shared Christ with him. I'm not really sure that was the best opportunity, but I didn't get a ticket. And he heard about Jesus. But when God opens the door for the gospel, he will have made you ready. Did you hear that? When God opens the door for the gospel, he will have made you ready. And the conversation will be natural. It doesn't need to be forced. At least it will if your life has been a witness to Jesus. And that's our third point. Speak by your example. Speak by your example. In the discipleship culture of the Jewish people, a person's character was often associated with the, the rabbi or the one who was pouring his life into you. I'm going to say that again. If you were a disciple in the days of Jesus, you were called a Talmud. And if you were a group, belonged to a group of disciples, you were in a group called the Talmud And your rabbi's sole focus was to pour everything into you so that you would become just like him. That's how Jewish rab rabbinical discipleship worked. Because the best definition of the word disciple in the Bible is learner. Learner. So when we are with Jesus, when you are studying to show yourself approved, when you are learning to pray and wait in anticipation for his answer and already thankful because you know he's going to send it, 
You know he's going to answer. That answer might not be the answer you were looking for, but it's going to be perfect. It's going to be good. You already know that because the backbone of your friendship with God is prayer, and your backbone is solid. So you know your God. Your God knows you. And that prayer begins to result now in words that flow horizontally. The very words that God is speaking through his word and in prayer go horizontally to the people around you. And all of a sudden, those words will gain traction when your life reinforces it why because you've been with jesus and he's making you just like him in fact look at this in acts chapter 4 now when they saw the boldness of peter and john this is after jesus returned to heaven when they saw the boldness of those two guys and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished now look at the rest of the verse it's the best part and they recognized that they had been with jesus you see jesus had been pouring his life into peter and john and other disciples and they were becoming just like him and all of a sudden it put power into their words See, you can speak, and I can speak all we want, but if our lives don't back it up, they're empty words. They're not going to have any kind of an impact, and we all know that. And we are disciples of Jesus. We are learners of him. We are seeking to become like him. So Paul says in verse 5, would you look at it with me? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. In other words, walk in wisdom toward non-believers that are all around you in your lives. And make the best use of the time you've got. Almost always, the first glimpse of the Bible that a person will have is through a Christian's life. I mean, it's becoming really telling, and this is why we've got an awesome, awesome website and social media teams here. Kira and Phoebe, and Dana, and Susan, and LJ. We've got so many people working on social media. Do you realize that almost nobody, almost nobody comes to this church without getting on our website and starting to listen to these sermons? A lot of you did the same thing. I'm hearing of it constantly when we do membership classes. I would do the same thing. I'm not going to go to a church if they're not preaching the gospel. So I'm going to go listen to the sermons before I get to that church. Well, guess what happens when somebody sees a Christian in action? And that action is actually degrading to Christ. That's their first exposure of Christ. It's why we're little Christ. We speak of Jesus in our lives, the way that we live. But when that exposure is one where you've been like Christ, you've been patient when your boss is mistreating you, you've been loving when your teacher is on you, you've been kind when you don't get to play and you're on the bench, all of a sudden your actions speak of Christ and a non-believer begins to see who Christ is through you. That's the power of a life that is undergirding your words. And that's how you walk in wisdom toward outsiders. But what is wisdom? I think we better settle that really quickly. I'm going to make it so simple because it really is not complicated. Wisdom is simply this. It is the power of God that enables us to take his knowledge and apply it in obedience. 
Listen, just try to remember that because we use wisdom wrongly all the time. It is the knowledge of God that is married to obedience. And it's the power of God to show us who he is and then help us live it out in our lives. That's what wisdom is. So if you lack wisdom, you're double-minded, meaning that you know what you ought to do, but you're not doing it. That's what it means to be double-minded, and that's what James says. If you're lacking wisdom, then ask of God, and he will be generous to give it to you. But when you ask, do not doubt, or you will be like a tree tossed to and fro and in the storms of life. That's the power of wisdom, to take double-minded people who know better but don't live it and unite it in a life that I know what God wants, and he's given me the power to live it out. That's what wisdom is. So walk in wisdom with outsiders, toward outsiders. Did you see the direction? Actually, I'm going to tell you a little secret. This is one of my favorite parts of the entire passage, the word toward, because I've never noticed it until this week. And I've read this so many times. Because you know what I do in my flesh? I'm going to tell you what Pastor Tim Ackley does. Lord, I hope you send somebody my way. And that's okay to pray until that's the only time you ever share Christ. And as a pastor, it's really easy to retreat into the cocoon of the subculture of the church. Oh, yeah, I'm sharing Christ all the time from the pulpit and in counseling. You know what? How am I doing, though, with people outside of the church? Am I moving toward them? And are the other pastors on this staff, are we moving toward outsiders? strategically, intentionally, making it clear, asking God, watching for opportunities, already thanking them because he's going to answer that prayer, and then being able to gently, wisely, lovingly share the mystery of Christ with somebody outside of the church. Are you doing that? Walk in wisdom toward, don't wait for them to come to you, walk toward the outsiders. You know who they are. Now listen, let's just level the playing field really quickly, and then we'll get back to this fun sermon. Right now, I'm going to ask you to take hold of the mental face that pops into your mind with this question. What non-believer in your life needs to hear about Jesus? Who first came into your mind? Can I just tell you, trust me, that's who God is telling you to go toward. Um, I don't know, Tim. I don't, that's going to be very hard. Not if the Lord's opening up the opportunity. So pray for it and ask God to do it because he's already placed the person into the mental imagery of your mind when you answered the question. But we are to make the best use of the time. You know what it, that word is to redeem it. It means to buy up the time, cash it in. The opportunities that God has, you got to take them or you're going to lose them. And there are people, to my shame, that I was convicted to go talk about Christ and I waited and I waited and I can think of some who died before I ever had the opportunity. Now, I'm a big believer in the sovereignty of God, so I don't stay in commiseration very long because I know God has other people other than Tim Ackley to share that gospel message. 
But it's to my shame. I was robbed of a reward. I was robbed of the honor. I was robbed of the joy of making a friend in heaven who's going to greet me one day when I get to heaven and going to be clapping to me going, I am so glad and so thankful that you shared Christ with me. I am your friend for eternity because of that. Picture a wise investor who knows an opportunity when he sees it and moves fast before it's gone. Or a careful shopper who knows the store is going to sell out in the first hour of that sale item, so they get there when the store opens. That's what it means to make the best use of the time. And again, you're praying, God, open the doors. I'm going to watch for those doors to be open. I'm already thanking you because I know, I know you're going to open that, that door. You're going to give me an opportunity. And when you do, I'm going to walk through it and I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to cash it out. I'm going to make the best use of the time because I want to share the mystery of Christ with that person. But if we're going to do that, number four, we need to speak graciously with confidence. Sometimes the only way we are ever going to know if God has given us a door to speak life to someone is to gently push on the door. And if it opens, God has given you that moment to redeem. And if it doesn't, then just keep praying. You push gently, you speak graciously the way one who has been made new in Christ should you remember I told you that Paul is in house arrest for two years now in Rome when he wrote this book? But he also wrote Philippians during that time, and he wrote in that letter these words. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, when Rome puts somebody under house arrest, they actually chain a soldier to you. And there are shifts. And when it's the next shift, they unshackle that guard and a new guard shackles. And what Paul was doing is Paul keeps sharing Christ with every captive audience that he has. And he keeps leading them to Jesus and they keep getting saved. And Rome keeps sending soldiers and Paul keeps speaking to them and they keep getting saved. Listen, nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing. And Paul's encouraging this church in Colossians or at Colossae, pray and ask God to give you opportunities so that you can speak clearly and live an attractive, accurate life and let your speech always be gracious, verse 6, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, I love barbecuing food, and I love smoking food. We smoked a pork butt today. That's a pork shoulder, if any of you don't know. It's not actually from the posterior end of the pig. It's from the shoulder. And I know this, that some foods, you got to put a lot of salt on it. Some foods, only a little salt, and some foods you don't want to salt. You are to season. I am to season my speech, our speech, 
which, what does that person need? Not everybody needs the same thing. I mean, Jesus spoke to a leper and told him he was willing to heal him, and then he proved it by doing that. That's what the leper needed at his heart level. Not just, not just physically, he needed Jesus to actually speak to him and say, I am willing and touch him. Now the leper's body and his soul are healed. He came to a greedy tax collector, and he said, listen, get down out of that tree, because I'm coming to your home, and we're going to have fellowship. We're going to have friendship. That's what the tax collector needed, because everybody hated Jewish tax collectors. He had no friends. The woman at the city, the woman of the city, she was a prostitute. She needed to hear Jesus speak forgiveness and love to her repentant heart and let her cry on his feet and wipe it up with her hair. He spoke to her, to her soul. Not every person needs the same seasoning. You had one timid Pharisee in John 3, Nicodemus, who needed Jesus to actually chide him, confront him for his unbelief, and then tell him how he could be saved. That was a little more confrontational. But always we speak words that are gracious and wise, that are tailored to the need of that person. So how do you speak words of grace? And I'm going to give you an acronym, G-R-A-C-E. And here's how you do it. You ready? Our words must always be gentle, filled with kindness, not abrasive judgment or anger. Can you all look at me for just a second? I really want to impress something on you that I have unfortunately learned the hard way. I have never, I have never successfully debated or argued anyone into wanting to place his or her faith in Christ. Not one time there was no lack of effort it just doesn't work i listen a lot i let a person talk and all the while i'm discerning god and i'm praying god show me and i'm discerning that person's unique need and then i speak gently to that need but then there's the r because i seek to be reasonable I want to explain the gospel in the most sensible way I can, rather than lofty theological ideas. Even when I'm talking to an intellectual, I still keep it simple. R.C. Sproul, who is now with the Lord, but he's one of the smartest men I've ever read from, he said he used sometimes big words to cover up the fact he didn't know what he was talking about. When you talk to an intellectually minded person that is up in the stratosphere of philosophy and ideas, I'm just going to tell you, most of the time, they have no idea what they're talking about. And if they do, they have no way to connect it to real, authentic life. What they need is a reasonable Christian that can just speak to the most simple, beautiful, good news of the mystery of Christ. And I speak to the deepest God-created desires in every person, and I make the gospel attractive. That's the A, meaning desirable. So I talk about hope. Why do I talk about hope with people that don't know Christ? Because that's part of the imprint of the God image. Every single person on this planet wants hope. And when you lose hope, you're thinking suicide. 
So I speak about hope, and I speak about peace, and I speak about joy, and I speak about life, and I speak about friendship with God. And all of these are gifts from a loving God, and they are resonating with the heart of that unbeliever. But if we're really going to be effective in our witnessing, we, we need more than just gentle, reasonable, and attractive words. Our words have got to be Christ-centered. If we talk about powerful emotional experiences that we've had, even radical changes, and even a loving God, but you don't point it to Christ, then you're not giving them a good message of the mystery of Christ. They need to see, they need to hear that Jesus died on the cross, and that's the only way you're going to have a relationship with the Father. If you want a friendship with God, it has to go through Christ. There's, you can't go around him. There's no other way to gain it. So our words are Christ-centered, and it's a message of good news that God can save anybody. My father was a contractor. And I remember a house in the little town I grew up in that I told you about last week, Derrida, New York. I remember a house that he bought that was absolutely run down. We, he redeemed it, meaning he bought it, and then he restored it. And I helped him do it. And that's what God does. Listen, you don't need, nobody needs to get their act together. The restoration follows redemption. Let them know you can come to God with dirty souls. The worst of sinners. But if you come to God through Christ in faith, he's going to save you. And he's going to restore your life. And he's going to make you have a life that's worth living, full of dignity and purpose and value and joy and peace and life. That's a Christ-centered message. Listen to Paul's words, he said in 1 Corinthians. In fact, while I was with you, I made up my mind to speak only about Jesus Christ, who had been nailed to a cross. That's the only thing Paul would ever talk about. Well, you can't improve on that. So it's Christ-centered. And finally, our words that are full of grace will be effective. My thought is not always when I'm sharing the message of, the, of Jesus with a non-believer, my thought is not always that they're going to pray right then and there for salvation. I mean, that would be great, but I don't even expect that. My goal is this. I want to move them one more step towards Christ. And if my conversation can do that, then God, that was worth having it. I really want to speak grace-filled words that will help somebody put their faith in Jesus. So as I close, let me ask you another hard question. And this one is really tough. And I don't really care how old or how young you are because you can all answer this. I want you to really ponder this. When is the last time you shared the gospel, the mystery of Christ, to an unbeliever? When was the last time you witnessed and you spoke grace-filled words that were Christ-centered to an unbeliever? And our, I suspect our answer to that would indicate either an apathy in us for the unsaved or God's lack of giving us opportunity, and I'm pretty sure it's not the latter one. We've got to speak words of life to the spiritually lost. 
Do you remember that Barna research survey I told you at the beginning? Are you really honestly willing to ask God to do this? Or have you fallen into that 47%? I don't even think it's right. Because if you ask God to give you an opportunity, I'm going to promise you he's going to give you one. Because that's what he wants. Make the most of every opportunity and speak grace-filled words. Let those words be gentle, reasonable, attractive, Christ-centered, and effective. Amen?